Security. My name is Alex Gum and I'm a sophomore here at Notre Dame and member of the International Security Certificate Program. Today I am delighted to speak with Susan Osterman who comes to us from the new Keough School of Global Affairs. Osterman's research focuses primarily on regulatory research in South Asia, but she is broadly interested in cultural norms and how they change in the region as a whole. Her current projects are designed to explore the historical roots of conservatism in Indian political thought, the development and expansion of the Indian Election Commission, and variation in sex ratios throughout the subcontinent. She has also published work on the Indian bureaucracy, state capacity in South Asia, and the 2014 Indian general election. Professor Osterman, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, so given your expertise in South Asian affairs, I was hoping to talk today about the refugee crisis in Myanmar. Uh, currently, the Brookings Institution estimates over 300,000 members of the Muslim minority group, the Rohingya, have been displaced forcefully by the Myanmar government. The refugees have been describing to reporters a litany of human rights abuses, homes burned, women raped, men beheaded, and more. Aung San Suu Kyi, the de facto leader of Myanmar, has faced vast criticism from the international community for her unwillingness to address this issue in her country. Uh, so broadly speaking, how did we get to this point? It's an excellent question, um, and I'll preface my comments by saying that I am not officially a Burma scholar. <laughs> I study South Asia, and Burma is sort of tangentially quite important for that. So, um, and I've in fact, with the exception of eight hours spent on the runway in Burma oh, in wow. 2003, I have not been to Burma, but um, but I do read quite a lot about it, and I know quite a bit about this particular crisis. So, anyhow, how did we get to this point? Right. <laughs> And without going too much into the history, because actually um, that would take quite a long time, um, but the history is really important to this particular crisis, um, I'll start by saying that legal restrictions on the free movement of people over the surface of the planet are actually a pretty modern phenomenon. Um, and in part that's because states restricting people and actually trying to control their borders are a modern phenomenon as well. Um, up until, I would say, in large scale, the 19th century, people were able to move freely, but they couldn't because of, say, geographical, physical, and in the end, mainly technological restrictions. So why does that matter, right? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, thanks, great, lot, lot of back history, right? Um, that matters because some argue, and I think there's good evidence to support this, that the Rohingya have been living in modern-day Myanmar for centuries. Um, in fact, there's um, this is pretty plausible. The state in which they reside, which was called Arakan State um, and is now called Rakhine State, is coastal and it borders modern-day Bangladesh. They're thought to be of Indo-Aryan descent as opposed to Tibeto-Burman descent, which a lot of the other groups in Myanmar are from. So it's, it's perfectly plausible that they came to this area by sea or by land and have been living there for some time. In fact, the Myanmar government has traced their residency uh, in Arakan State back to the 8th century. So even by the government's own admission, they've been there for some time. Um, now, some people have claimed that that makes them native. Mm -hmm. to Myanmar. Now we could, I think this is where we get into a bit of a battle, right? Um, what, what does it mean to be native? How long do you have to be there? At what point do we call something native, right? Um, suffice it to say for our conversation today, I would argue that 
let's leave words like native aside and let's sure. say that they have been there for at least several hundred years. Um, now, that's important because um, the rhetoric around this issue more modernly suggests that the Rohingya are more modern illegal immigrants, which sort of reflects some of the immigration debates that are going on throughout the rest of the world. Um, indeed, some others, in contrast to the previous um, sort of perspective that I gave you, have argued that the Rohingya and Indo-Aryan people, as I mentioned, um, in terms of genetics, tracing themselves more to the subcontinent than to um, modern-day Myanmar and the Tibeto-Burman uh, heritage, um, some people argue that they came during British rule or later. Okay. Okay. Um, now, until 1947, the countries currently known as India, Bangladesh, and Myanmar were actually really all part of one colony, mm -hmm. um, first controlled by the East India Company and later by the British Crown. Right. Um, because the area was controlled by a single colonial power, there actually was quite a bit of movement within that region for a number of different reasons. One being that uh, the British Crown and the East India Company were involved in extractive enterprises throughout the colony, and they moved labor around in order to further those, those enterprises. The other one being, and this is important because it gets to the later portion, um, uh, there was large-scale movement of South Asians into modern-day Myanmar um, during World War II uh, to help with the war effort um, and, in fact, to defend against Japanese invasion. Um, it's a sort of little-known history, but if for some reason anybody out there is interested in reading more, uh, there's a fantastic book called Farthest Field about um, sort of World War II in uh, the subcontinent. It's by Raghu Karnad. Um, so anyway, various peoples from South Asia migrated to modern-day Myanmar during this period, mm -hmm. um, during British rule. Thus, in all likelihood, both sides are correct in this debate. Right. Um, there are people who have been living here, or who have been living in Myanmar, who could trace their descent back centuries, and there are people who have come more modernly. Um, so what? Right? right. <laughs> Fantastic. <Yeah>. Right? <laughs> um, this is important because post-independence Myanmar has become increasingly intolerant mm -hmm. of the Rohingya, um, their presence in Myanmar territory, and actually vice versa. Um, in fact, right after independence, a Rohingya separatist group uh, fought the Burmese government for years um, in northern parts of Arakan state, which is where the Rohingya are a majority in terms of the local population. Um, after this, unarmed, non-militant groups faced military crackdowns, Rohingya groups faced military crackdowns in 1978, uh, again in 1991 through 1992, with a long breather, yeah. <laughs> um, up until 2012, I believe, and then again 2015, and now the present day crisis. Right. Um, so there's really a long lineage to this. Um, now, early on in this cycle, the Myanmar government declared that the Rohingya, um, and note that I'm actually not saying Rohingya Muslims at this point, because there are Hindus and, in fact, Christians amongst them, sure. though they are mostly Muslim. Um, the Myanmar government declared them to be not one of the eight national peoples right. <laughs> yeah. um, that make up the Burmese population and essentially made them stateless because they refused to recognize their citizenship. Um, and I can tell you 
that being stateless is just about the last thing we want to be in this world. Mm -hmm. um, having defended uh, an asylum case uh, quite a while ago now, this must have been 2006, 2005, of a Tibetan man who was persecuted in Nepal and fled to the U.S. Yeah. and had no documents from any country. Right. I know all too well um, that statelessness, save for UN protections, um, is a, a very difficult category. Because when you're stateless, you're not receiving any of the government protections. Exactly. Yeah. You have, you're nobody's responsibility. Right. Um, and nobody wants to be uh, responsible for you as well. Um, one of the first things I remember from this particular case was going into the court and in an asylum case, the court wants to know, um, the court here in the U.S. anyway, mm -hmm. wants to know where you're from right. and where you can be sent back to if the case is decided against you. Now, what do you say for somebody who's stateless? Yeah, I mean... I mean, there is no government out there that this person has valid documentation related right. to, so where do you send the person back to, right? This is the exact problem that the Rohingya face. They can flee as refugees, but they can't be sent back legally. Mm-hmm anywhere yeah. <laughs> and it's a large population um, so the only thing that I wanted to say in terms of the trajectory to this point that's important and that I think has received some press but perhaps not enough is the historical counterfactual um, that Arakan state which as I mentioned borders modern-day Bangladesh the northern portions of it and Rohingya in these areas actually made an appeal in 1946 and 1947 as um, India was coming into being and Pakistan was also coming into being and uh, they made an appeal to uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League and the sort of uh, modern day founder of Pakistan, to join East Pakistan mm -hmm. um, as a majority Muslim group that seemed like the right affinity for them. Um, we don't have that much information on exactly what happened at this point, but the sort of um, lore suggests that Jinnah, for various reasons, turned them down. Um, and so one wonders what might have happened if Jinnah had either negotiated or fought a little bit more for them to, or at least the northern portions of Arakan to be part of East Pakistan. Now, there were problems with that. Uh, General Aung San, Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, mm -hmm. uh, father, was running uh, Burma, now Myanmar, at this point, or at that point. And my guess is that if uh, Jinnah had said, we'd like all of Arica, right? right. <laughs> Probably General Aung San would not have been um, uh, willing to just let it go, would, would probably have fought for it. And Pakistan, at that point, was not in a position to defend territorial claims or annex additional territory. Um, but my guess is there might have been a negotiated solution for a small amount of territory that would have saved countless lives. Right. Um, that's, of course, all in the past. Yeah, so that never let's, happened. Mm -hmm. We'll move on to thinking about the future. But that's my sort of, uh, that's the quick and dirty version of how we got to this point. Yeah. <laughs> and so now the current political state in Myanmar, we just had, and a few years ago, the first openly contested elections in 2015. Myanmar. 2015. So mm -hmm. there Aung San Suu Kyi gets elected. Um, technically not the president because of her husband is a foreign national, so she mm -hmm. can't keep that title, but she has a, um, 
they create a title of state counselor, so she mm -hmm. becomes a de facto leader. But how much does the domestic politics play into it? Because Aung San Suu Kyi went to the UN General Assembly a few weeks ago and received a lot of criticism for not recognizing uh, the problem of the Rohingya. Um, but so Myanmar used to be dominated by a military state. What's the relationship like with the civilian government and the military in Myanmar, and how does that play into it as far as the Myanmar cri uh, the crisis in Myanmar? Because it's the military that's going in there. Mm. Um, and or at least that's what we understand. Right, as case, we understand. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a lot of this um, problem would be easier to tackle if we had a better understanding of exactly what's happening, but the um, Myanmar authorities obviously don't want too much investigation going on, right? right? Um, so, in terms of the relationship to domestic politics, um, I would say that the situation is quite delicate. And it would not be an understatement to call uh, Myanmar a fragile, nascent democracy. <laughs> um, and I do believe there's a tacit agreement between Aung San Suu Kyi and the military that, to a great degree, she can have her democracy, but she better, she better not try to um, exercise civilian control over the military. Right. <laughs> um, you know, the... There's nothing exactly on paper, to my knowledge, about this, but I, I think that's the agreement that we are seeing sort of played out in front of us. Um, and she is doing a bit of a delicate tap dance around. Um, I'd like to believe uh, that she is a bigger, better person than she is acting right. at this point. Um, but she is also probably quite sensitive to the threat of a continued military rule. Um, that said, in some ways, the Rohingya violence actually represents, um, and the mili presumed military actions against the Rohingya in certain parts of Myanmar actually represents almost an existential threat to democracy in Myanmar. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a direct attack on people living in the state, on the population that might vote. Right. Right. Um, and this is uh, something we've seen played out in many different contexts over history. This is, this is a way to change the, the voting population. Um, it's critical enough that I would say that Aung San Suu Kyi should be doing something about it right. um, if she is, in fact, a proponent of democracy in Myanmar. Um, these issues have a way of cropping up again and again over time. I don't want to make too facile a comparison to, say, Israel and Palestine, um, and or I should just say the Palestinians living in the state that is recognized as Israel, right? Right. Um, I, I would want to really think hard about that comparison, but there are plenty of other comparisons as well. Um, a group of people denied rights um, in a place that they have a claim to is um, something that's not going to go away. And I think that if she... Um, if she is, in fact, a proponent of democracy, she may actually have to, to some degree, butt heads with the military. Yeah. Um, democracy is rarely easily achieved. Its democratization is often a bloody process, <laughs> regrettably. Sure. Um, and if she wants lasting democracy in Myanmar, she may have to stick her neck out further than she currently is. So what realistic... Uh, things could she do to like protect the Rohingya people um, without overstepping her boundaries? Because I'd imagine if she goes 
too hard against the military, she risks the very foundation of democracy mm -hmm. itself in the country. I mean, is there anything that she can do herself without uh, international support, or is it going to take something larger than domestic politics in Myanmar itself? I would say um, that there's a fine line that she needs to walk to hopefully prevent further military takeover. Right. Um, and one of the best things that I can think of at this point is allowing um, observation, right? So sure. to a great degree, keeping the doors open to journalists um, and potentially to UN observers um, because information, she very recently asserted that um, these were isolated incidents. Um, and they're trying, the Myanmar government is trying to figure out why people are fleeing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my experience and evidence suggests that people do not flee their homes unless something quite bad is happening. Um, so um, if she and her government are unable to figure out what's happening, opening the doors, or at least keeping the doors open to the small degree that they are now to allow others to try to figure that out uh, is the most positive step I can think of. Now, she's argued that the Rohingya themselves have labeled the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army a terrorist group. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, is there a degree of truth to that, that they're actually causing violence, the Rohingya themselves are causing violence? Uh, is it a case that we simply don't know enough about the situation? And, and if Aung San Suu Kyi was actually going to try to address um, the crisis, would she have to take back the stance that uh, that the ARSA is, is a terrorist group in order to move forward? So there is a history of, and this is true in so many um, sort of civilian <laughs> battle, or I should say civil battles, um, you know, sort of wars occurring all within a state. Um, there is a, a arm of as you mentioned, that is involved in allegedly terrorist activities. Um, historically, the Rohingya have been associated with a number of different groups that are um, more militant. The bulk of the population, to my knowledge, is not involved in such activities. Um, and I'm not sure she would have to take that label back to do something about the civilian population that is not militarized right. and not, I mean, it, from, from what I know, it is a small uh, group of people. Um, and I don't think that the bulk of the population is concerned with labels. They're considered with, they're concerned with survival. Sure. Um, so as most of the Western world has criticized the uh, Myanmar government, Aung San Suu Kyi's handling of the situation, two countries, India and China, uh, have been wary of criticism. Both of them are huge economic partners. Of, of Myanmar, they support their uh, military. Um, China is their number one largest exporter, and then India comes at number three. Both those countries have much more influence uh, than, say, the United States does in, in Myanmar. Um, India themselves supported um, Aung San Suu Kyi when she was in prison. Um, and so those two, the big powers in Asia, are kind of fighting over influence uh, in Myanmar these past um, few years. How does that affect the, the, the Rohingya um, crisis, if at all? And um, where do you see the balance of power between those countries moving forward? I wish that it was affecting Myanmar in the way that, say, the battle between the two great powers is affecting a place like Nepal, where I spend a lot of time doing research. Mm -hmm. 
there, um, there's a lovely sort of tit for tat of an escalation in terms of providing aid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's fantastic. You know, the, um, the Chinese will uh, give some money to build a hospital and then the Indians give money to build a hospital. Um, all to the benefit of the Nepali people. Right. Um, I wish that was what was going on in this particular case. Um, you're correct to state that both China and India have large investments in Myanmar. Um, and unfortunately, I think in this case, those investments don't give them terribly much to work with in terms of influencing the government of Myanmar, particularly because they've focused on infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And the problem with infrastructure is that you can't take it back, right. <laughs> especially when the project is part of the way to completion and you are realizing many of the gains from completing it because your companies are doing the work. Um, so you could, I suppose, threaten not to complete the project, but then you won't probably get repaid the loans for building it. Sure. <laughs> so they have they're in a bit of a, a tight spot in terms of influencing the, the Myanmar government. Um, that said, and I can't really speak as much to China because I'm not an East Asia scholar. Yeah. Um, I know what I read in the papers, and I, I guess I read with a, a careful and keen insight, but right. a keen interest in understanding. But um, in terms of India, India has historically been very concerned with disturbances along its borders. Um, so I know that it's watching and listening carefully. Right. Um, and um, it's historically paid a lot more attention to border disturbances. This is uh, evidenced by, say, um, Jammu and Kashmir. Yeah. Um, by um, the insurgencies that it took on um, in uh, neighboring areas to Myanmar, in Mizoram and Nagaland. Um, as well as what we saw this summer, the sort of India and China border right, spat their own border high crisis. Himalayan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing up there, <laughs> <laughs> but it seems important to both countries right. to uh, claim their territory. Anyhow, um, India has historically been, has historically allowed violence within its borders to fester in central areas, like the Maoist violence in central India. But border violence, it considers differently. Um, and this is, um, in part, I think, the way the Indian state views its uh, Westphalian boundaries. Um, it takes them very seriously. Uh, there's some decent research by my friend and colleague, Basandra Sarnate, um, who takes this issue on far more fully and says that the Indian state um, will send in the military almost invariably to situations along its boundaries if there's instability there. So instability on the very long border between um, Myanmar and India's northeast, another problematical area for India, rises to the attention of the folk in Delhi. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, what are they going to do about it? Right. Um, there have been, in fact, there is sort of um, a bit of a border wall <laughs> going up there. Um, realistically speaking, though, it's an incredibly long border. And it's a forested area uh, that has mm, historically had quite a lot of movement across it by the quote-unquote tribal populations living in the region. So I don't think they're going to truly control that border, which means refugees can come across it. Um, the most logical way for India to deal with this would be to take in Rohingya refugees, right? Um, 
India has taken in Tibetan refugees, right. Sri Lankan refugees, yeah. so there's historical precedent. Um, it would also be a particularly, I think, poignant move for Prime Minister Modi to, to do so, in part because many of his doubters um, point to his problems with the domestic Muslim population. Um, and this would be a way to not only embarrass Aung San Suu Kyi into maybe uh, taking on, uh, taking more control over the problem herself, but also into, um, it would allow him to um, gain some moral ground domestically and say, see, I'm not anti-Muslim, you know, I, I support Muslims, etc. Um, that is not what has happened thus far. Uh, unfortunately, the BJP is Hindu nationalist in its history. It has been behaving less like a Hindu nationalist organization in power than some of us expected it to. But it is a Hindu nationalist organization, um, and that has been the tone that we've seen thus far. The Indian government is, in fact, um, defending its right to deport Rohingya right. in the Indian uh, courts, and this case is coming up to the Indian Supreme Court. Now, the Indian Supreme Court, I suspect, without trying to put, uh, you know, I kind of want to knock on wood, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I am hopeful uh, that the Supreme Court will do the right thing in the way that the government is not. Um, the Indian Supreme Court may well say that this is something that um, has to be allowed, in which case Prime Minister Modi will lose the moral high ground of letting them in himself, um, but he will keep his party's base happy. So we will see. Um, I, I know how I hope it turns out. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, and, you know, if I wake up tomorrow and uh, Prime Minister Modi says, let them in, I will uh, happily uh, come back and correct my statements today. Sure. <laughs> um, so as we move into our, our final question here, um, at least from the United States perspective, um, the Obama administration removed much of the sanctions on uh, Myanmar, um, President Obama citing that um, the government has moved uh, forward in their democratic movements. Uh, but now, given the crisis in Myanmar um, with this refugee crisis, do you think it's in the best interest of the United States and uh, to address the problem as far as putting some sanctions back in? Uh, what would you do moving forward in terms of those? So I suppose um, the answer depends upon who you is and who I'm representing, right? right. <laughs> if the U is just the U.S. or if the U is the entire world, as in the U.N., um, the answer to that question is so highly political. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think from a moral standpoint, I know I would do what I would do um, if I were running the show. Right. Um, but I think that it's pretty problematical from a U.S. perspective. It's not like we're going to invade Myanmar. Right. Um, we have plenty of wars we haven't finished yet elsewhere. Right. Um, and realistically speaking, this is something that should be handled by the UN. Um, I hope the US continues to pursue all available avenues through the UN. Um, but it's even for the UN, it's quite difficult because on the one hand, the international community is thrilled at the sort of moment of political opening that we seem to be seeing in Myanmar. Right. And um, everybody has high hopes for democracy there. So nobody really wants to do anything to touch this sort of 
fragile state, everybody is hoping that uh, the problem can be solved domestically. Yet evidence suggests it's, it's not. not. Yeah. Um, even this morning, we all wake up and see that a boat of Rohingya right, refugees capsized and at least 12 people died, yeah. but something like 100 or missing. People, yeah. I mean, at some point, um, we all have to stop just watching the news and saying maybe they'll do something, right? Right. Um, what can be done? So, well, I think this is as, uh, the sort of tricky tightrope um, that the international community is, is walking is almost exactly what I think Aung San Suu Kyi is walking herself. Um, I believe she's sitting there saying, I don't, I've fought really hard for democracy here. I don't want to slip back. We've just gained some ground. But also realizing that there are grave threats to that democracy and the, the entire world is watching. Um, in terms of what the UN might be able to do, um, I think the sort of, if, if we were to call this genocide or ethnic cleansing, um, one of the things that should be done at the very least, even if there's no official peacekeeping role, is some sort of observer role. Um, one of the things that we really learned from Rwanda, for instance, is that U.S., Belgian, and uh, U.N. pullout was a significant accelerant right. to the killing in that particular place. I'm not trying to say that that actually caused it. There was killing going on sure. when those entities and agencies left. But sort of a forensic study of when the killing accelerated was when all those groups pulled out and nobody was left to bear witness. Um, there's a really decent, if slightly controversial, documentary. I believe it's called The Untold Story. It's a BBC documentary on the violence in Rwanda. I think I've seen it okay. in one of the theology <laughs> classes, yeah. It's um, pretty much the, the, the summary of the documentary or the conclusion of the documentary is that many lives might have been saved. Not all, but many lives might have been saved if the sort of... Um, bearing witness function had not been removed. Right. The U.S., the Belgians, um, and the U.N. made decisions, very difficult decisions to pull out, mm -hmm. but that is when a lot of the killing happened. Um, so in terms of walking this tightrope from an international perspective and from uh, sort of the perspective of Aung San Suu Kyi, I think maybe the route forward, as I alluded to before, is this observer function, um, keeping the door open to journalists and maybe UN observers, um, such that the military does not get away with things, even domestically, right? Um, they may want to hide things from their own people, and if there are others watching, they will have a harder time lying about them, right? Right. Um, this also has the benefit of after the fact, if it's just an observer function, um, blame can't be passed off to the UN either, right? So right. if the UN comes in in a peacekeeping role or you know, uh, if there was a more military intervention, um, then anything after the fact can in some ways be blamed on those inadequacies, right? As opposed to an observer function where anything that happens is a domestic issue. Right. Um, and after the fact, that should help to reform the military and maybe bring the military under civilian co control, et cetera. Sovereignty is a really tricky issue. Yeah. Um, and I think really hard about this a lot of the time, especially related to um, 
sort of democratization and state building and state capacity um, when I teach comparative politics. So it's, it's a tricky issue. A lot of the times it's a lot more violent than I would like it to be. But I, I hope that the way forward here is to preserve democracy, um, minimize violence, mm. um, and, and sooner rather than later. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's an extremely complex issue with the with the Rohingya crisis there and um, with all the geopolitical and the domestic factors. There's too much going on. Right, and of course the actual humanitarian crisis itself. But, uh, well, Professor Osman, thank you so much for coming on Students Talk Security this week. Uh, Hope everyone had a good time listening, Um, and hopefully we can move forward to the entire international community as far as trying to solve this issue. I hope so too, and thank you for having me. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.